Well, good morning, friends, and welcome to another Equip podcast where we go back through what we looked at in class on Sunday. And on Sunday just gone by, we've continued our journey through hermeneutics, particularly now having moved on from context to look at digging into the text itself. Remember those three horizons of meaning? There's behind the text, within the text, and in front of the text, behind the text being context. But kind of the most important is that middle horizon. What is actually in the text itself? And one of our convictions is that Scripture is inspired by God. That is, it is ultimately His Word. Therefore, it's inerrant. Every word of it is true and accurate. And so we come to the text with a great amount of respect. This is the voice of God. And so we want to listen carefully. I taught you a method for going through the text and and making sure you can get the most out of it. Uh, It's not a silver bullet, it's nothing magic, uh, but it's a way of just making sure that you you have the best chance of sticking with the meaning of the text rather than sort of going off base and coming up with your own stuff. And that method was the coma method, which perhaps you can remember what each of those letters stands for. C for context, O for observation, M for meaning, and A for application. I had you go through a short text from 1 Corinthians on Sunday and uh, come up with some uh, observations of your own, going through that text in small groups. And today for our Equip podcast, I just want to walk through that text with you and give some of my observations. Uh, And as I go, I'll, I'll give you a few of the questions that I ask of a text like this. If you're at a computer or you're at uh, your mobile phone or an iPad or something like that, you may want to actually open up the um, uh, document that I linked to on our resources page where there's a little article there about coma questions, like these extra questions you can ask. Uh, This is from a fellow, David Helm, who's written a book on one-to-one Bible reading, and he's very helpfully just made this PDF available for free that has questions for every single different genre in the Bible. It's like, okay, in this coma method, what are some extra questions you can ask to get a bit more observation or to make sure you're narrowing down on the meaning? And they're targeted for each different genre of scripture. So I've opened to a page here uh, that just says at the top, coma questions for the epistles. And I'm, I'm going to just talk through some of those questions and what I observe in the text to give you a bit of a model of how to do this well, uh, as well as perhaps to answer some of the questions that you may have had when you went through this text on Sunday. So I'll start just by reading out the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God, through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So let's think about context first of all. And we did quite a bit of work on this uh, before splitting up in small groups on Sunday. So just as a 30 second review, I'm looking at the questions there from David Helm under context. What can we learn about the person or the situation to which the letter is written? Of course, if you go back to the start of chapter one, we learn that this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. What clues are there about the author and his circumstances? Well, we don't learn too much about Paul here, except that in chapter one, verse one, he has been called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And perhaps we recognize that that word called there in verse one uh, is also used in verse 24 to those who are being called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we can assume Paul is including himself in that statement. I have been called by God. And therefore, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God for me. I'm not subscribing to any of these false ideas that perhaps you guys are, that he warns about in the passage. I am under Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Third question there. What was the main point of the passage immediately before before this one? Are there any logical or thematic connections to the passage you're reading? And you may remember from Sunday that... Uh, There were a lot of factions, uh, people breaking off and saying, I follow this leader, I follow that one. I was baptized by him, I was baptized by him. Our baptism was better because this leader was better and so on and so on. Uh, You can see that in verse 10 to 17. And then also in the passage following, verse 26 onwards, uh, we see how God intends to shame the wise or the supposedly wise of the world by choosing the foolish things. Uh, So Corinthian church, you may think that you're wise, aligning yourself with this very impressive leader or having these very impressive spiritual gifts. But God chose the foolish things, not the wise things. And he did it to shame the supposedly wise things. So, verse 31, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, not themselves or their own supposedly impressive qualities. There's a bit on the context. So now we want to dig down into the text. And I've got observation questions here. Now, this first one's really important. Are there any major subsections or breaks in the text? So I often call this chunking it down, okay? Uh, Is there any point where we could go, oh, this is part one, this is part two, and what's the connection between them? So as I look at this text, I can see that uh, there's a couple of words for at the beginning of verse 18 and 19. For the word of the cross is folly, and then for it is written. That obviously means that there are some logical breaks here. Um, He's building an argument, right? Um, For the word of the cross is this, for it is written, and then you go to verse 21. For, since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God, etc., etc. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs, etc., etc. And then verse 25, for the foolishness, uh, foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So each of these represents a, a sort of building block in his argument. Uh, We could almost chunk down the passage into each of those little four, four, four sections, but then we'd have, if I count them up, five, I think, chunks, (laughs) and that'd be a bit awkward to work through. So we're better off just holding it all together and trying to get it all as one piece. Now, if you are reading all the way to verse 31, you'll notice that the paragraph breaks 
And uh, that might actually be a, a good point to chunk down the text at the start of verse 26. What is the main point or points? And what supporting points does the author make? Now, hopefully you can see here that the, the main point of this text is to do with how uh, the, the message of the cross, the message of the gospel about Jesus appears foolish to people of the world. However, it is actually the power of God. And I want to trace you through Paul's logic now. So starting from verse 18, For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's his main point straight away. And the question for us is, or the question for the reader is, uh, are we those who are perishing? And therefore the, the message of the cross is foolishness. It's considered not enough. Or are we those who are being saved and recognize that this is the power of God that indeed saves us? Now, Paul actually wants to include us in that second group. That's why he says to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So he's saying to the Corinthian church, even though you guys have stuffed a whole bunch up here, I'm including you in those who are being saved. Now, the question is, are you actually in that group? Now, to support his point that the cross is, it seems like folly, but it's actually the power of God, he appeals in verse 19 to Isaiah 29 verse 14, where he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, if you jump over to Isaiah 29, 14, what you'll see there is that in context, uh, Israel is under God's judgment, or at least Isaiah is prophesying that that's going to happen. They're going to be exiled, but this exile will lead to repentance. So he's going to humble Israel. They will see their foolishness in rejecting him, and in so doing, they will become wise, as it were. So verse 19, back in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, is, is sort of drawing on that image. It's, it's calling on the Jewish readers of this text to go, hey, remember when God humbled your forefathers and, and said, you know, I'm going to judge you guys and then you're going to come back to me. You don't want to have to go through that, do you? <laughs> God is going to destroy the wisdom of the people who think that they are wise. And they think they're discerning. They think they've got it all together. They think they've worked God out. They think they've worked out how to have a sinful life while keeping him at bay. Well, if they think they're that wise and that discerning, they're going to say, actually, when I thwart them, when I judge them, when I destroy them, they're very wrong. And the hope is that they'll repent. So Corinthian church, don't fall under that same judgment and don't have to go through the hard slog that will lead to repentance. Realize now that you are foolish and that the, uh, the gospel is indeed enough to save. He then follows it up with a whole lot of rhetorical questions in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? So on. And you can see there some little nods at context. Uh, there's debaters of this age that obviously must have been really impressive. There were, for the Jews, the scribes who had their huge knowledge of the law. They must have also seemed very impressive. Um, but uh, really, Paul here is asking, where are they? Hasn't God made them appear foolish by the coming of Christ and his great plan to save? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, is 
Paul actually preaching foolishness when he preaches the gospel of Christ? No, it's not foolishness. It's actually true wisdom. He's engaging here in irony, right? And if you imagine, once again, this is a letter. So the genre is he's speaking, he's writing to people. You've got to then ask, how are people receiving this? That's part of our expectation. When you read a letter, you, you know, you might have these little in-jokes with someone that they get. Well, here the Corinthian church will go, oh, no, it's Paul never said that he's preaching something foolish. No, he's always preached as though this is really, really wise. So no, it's not foolishness, but oh, it just appears foolish, but it actually saves us. And you see that contrast developed a bit further in verse 22, where Paul says that uh, the Jews, they demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom. There's a bit of separation there. Remember back in uh, the Gospels, uh, at various points, Jesus said that, um, you know, the, the people are coming to me. They want to see a sign. They want to see a miracle. They don't actually want to know me. They don't actually want to know God. So here, the Jews are demanding signs. The Greeks are seeking something that sounds really wise, an orator who can speak very winsomely, logic that sounds just so impenetrable. But what has God given us? He's given us Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, because they, in fact, are the ones who put him on the cross. And folly to Gentiles. How is it that a crucified, weak-seeming Messiah could save people? And the simplicity of this message, it, it doesn't carry any great philosophy. How is this something that could save? Well, verse 24, if you have been called, whether Jew or Greek, then Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And you can do a little bit of study there on the word called. How is that used elsewhere in Paul's writing? And what you might find out is that this is talking about an internal call within someone where God, as it were, opens their eyes, he opens their heart, he regenerates their mind so that they would see Jesus for who he is. Once you have been called in that way by God, you see that the gospel is all that you need. And so he's saying to the Corinthian church, do you understand the gospel? Do you have eyes to see it? Or are you thinking that the gospel message, the message about Christ crucified, is actually weakness compared to the things you're hearing in the world around you? And to drive home his point in verse 25, we get this rather surprising statement. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And David Helm's last question there is, what surprises are there in the flow of the argument? Now, this is a surprise. Is God foolish? Is God weak? This is meant to make us stop and listen. This is meant to make the Corinthian church stop and listen. And of course, the intended response that Paul wants is, no, God is not foolish. God is not weak. This is sort of like a, a use of hyperbole, exaggeration. Even if God was foolish, his foolishness, like his, his zero IQ would be greater than even the highest IQ of people. And even if God was at his very, very weakest, that very weakest point would be far stronger than the strongest of men. But God, of course, is never foolish, never weak. And so how much greater is he than any person, any sign, any argument that someone could come up with? So... Then we come to meaning. And uh, you, in, in your reading of this text, you may have drawn out a bunch of that stuff. You may not have. 
Um, I've read this text a bunch of times now and, and see a bunch of things. And, and to me, all this just bubbles out. Um, and over years of reading it, you, you may well come to the same point. Uh, maybe you have even more things that, that I didn't pick up on there, and that would be fantastic to hear from you if so. Uh, but then uh, meaning, um, David Helm has a few questions here, and he asks, you know, how does this text relate to other parts of the book? How does it relate to Jesus? How does it relate to God? How could you sum up the meaning of this passage in your own words? And I'm just going to jump to the last question there. Here's how I'd sum it up. The world offers many messages or ways to be saved, but they are foolish. God offers the only way to be saved, the power of a crucified Messiah. And the payload of that statement is, are you trusting in the foolishness of the world or the wisdom and power of the gospel? So we then come to application. And, and remember, we're not trying to jump off to all these different things when we come to this point. We've narrowed down on what this text is actually saying to the Corinthian church. Corinthian church, are you trusting in the world and its foolishness? Or are you trusting in the, the power of the gospel? This thing that seems weak, but is actually strong. And for application, I might ask, how does this passage challenge or confirm my understanding of the gospel? Which I might go, well, you know, I've got a lot of non-Christian friends and and family who think that this gospel is just stupid. They don't want to hear it. Uh, They think it's untrue. They, They think it's dumb. But one day, God will show that this is, in fact, the only way to be saved. And they're going to see that. I want to pray for them today that they would see it before it's too late. This is actually the way to be saved. I can be confident in that. And I need to pray that they have that calling on their life that we see in verse 24, that God would open their eyes to see the truth of the gospel. Another question I might ask is, is there some attitude that I need to change? That's one of the space pets questions that we looked at on Sunday. Is there an attitude I need to change? Well, maybe I walk into conversations with friends or with family so worried about sharing the gospel with them because I'm just afraid of looking like a fool. Well, what if I embrace looking like a fool, right? That the gospel is going to seem foolish to people until God opens their eyes. Uh, they're, they're immersed in the world and its messages. And so I shouldn't be surprised that they think I'm an idiot. What if I just embrace that, walk into conversations, try to share the gospel with them? Uh, they'll think it's stupid. They'll think I'm dumb and that's okay. But I'm going to keep sharing it in ways that are appropriate and wise and and all of that. Uh, And in so doing, I'm going to pray that God would open their eyes and call them to see Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And one final question might just be, how does this passage call on you to change the way that you live? Um, And uh, I might consider there, uh, like the Corinthians, am I currently trusting in the power of this gospel or am I heading towards the destruction of those who think that they are wise, but in fact are not. It's a call to recommit to trusting in Jesus and this gospel that appears foolish, but is the wisdom and power of God. What a passage, right? <laughs> what an amazing text. And and we've covered all that in, uh, if I check the recording, 20 minutes, okay. <laughs> not 10, but that's okay. Um this Sunday coming up, uh, we're going to look at another passage together and we're going to, to pick a very different genre. We're going to go Old Testament. We're going to do this uh, some of this together. Um, learning how to, to make that jump between observation, meaning and application. 
And then I'm really looking forward to the week following where I'm going to do something very creative with you guys. Uh, we're going to look at immersive Bible reading. So how do we actually let the words of Scripture so infuse us that they capture our imagination and push back on the uh, imagination capturing uh, powers that the world wants to exert on us. So that's our next couple of weeks. It's going to be really exciting. Really hope to see you guys there.